always complain about it, and I'm sorry. Like, I, I have to do this on some level. I try to make it tolerable, but it is what yeah. it is. Yeah, you're see, it's funny. I think like your podcast, um, half half the fun of it is like listening through the uh, the static. I mean, it's it's part of the it's got sort of an audio static to it. I feel like it's got it's part of the charm of uh, ZHP. So yeah, it's the, it's the mystique, right? It's thematically appropriate. That's what I tell myself. That's how I cope. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. In between, uh, in between coding uh, freemium games or whatever, that's you know, yeah, that, man, that's funny crush. though. <laughs> it, it just, it's just Candy Crush and, and no coders all day. Some, sometimes <laughs> I insist that this is my real voice, uh, but I don't know. The joke, any joke, risks going stale. So, yeah, true. It, it risks becoming coal. You know, that's the yeah, new, uh, yeah. That's that's the, the always the risk, man. Coal is everywhere. We gotta find the gems. Exactly, but coal, but see, coal heats up the gems. I feel That's like the, true. The, yeah, it creates the. If you have enough coal, like if the if coal is subjected to extreme pressure, it becomes a diamond, doesn't it? <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> It'll eventually become a gem. That's um, <laughs> but but for those you know. I never see it. It takes me an hour sometimes to get to intros, but everyone knows who you are. I was trying to think of like, I, I was thinking of how many different things we could talk about because we've known each other for a long time now. I think, I think like you were like one of the first like big people that fo like followed back. I was actually, man, um, that was many moons ago. That was, you know, but I guess a good introduction would be, like one thing I notice people ask you is that well, maybe they have, maybe they have, maybe I've just I've been paying attention. But um, you're interesting, ZHP, because you know you started off back in like the early, early frog Twitter days. But I'm assuming like you were a creature of the the blog sphere, were you not? Or you know, because people they've they've like accused you of being like a rationalist or like an adjacent rationalist. But you like hate those people, like you despise. Uh, slates are codex <laughs> those people but like what is your true origin like have you always been um a frog or a, like where does zhp come from and then we could get into like your, your fiction career but you know yeah i mean i mentioned this a little bit before uh i i was always a lurker mm. but i never really produced content uh ever until i became zero hp like i i was reading hartiste back when he was roycey yeah. And I, uh, you know, I read unqualified resignations when it was still going, like when Whoa. it started, pretty much. Yeah, no, I'm pretty old school in that way. And I, uh, like in 2013, when all these people like Spandrel and uh, I don't know, you were getting like the social matter and all those people posting, yeah. I listened to like uh, Ryan Landry's podcast and Radio Durham. I used to love John Dervisher's. Uh, column every week in like Talkies Mag or whatever. So I, I, I've been around for a long, long time, but uh, I never really like found a voice until about 2017 when I just had something to say. Yeah, and and what a thing you had to say! My God, um, <laughs> uh, no, it's no, but you know what's funny though is that like I know. 
when, okay, when you have a history with someone and then, you know, someone who has clearly made their mark, you know, and then you sort of, it's like, okay, we're talking like we're friends, but then you, you realize like you, you're like pretty like prolific or in, infamous, I guess would be the word, or depending on how much hate mail you get in your DMs every week. But I remember reading your threads and like being such a prolific thread man. Uh, I, I guess what I would ask is like, do you think the medium of threads, like you don't do them as much anymore. You did the really great one, which I want to cover, which was the impetus for you know, finally asking you on, uh, which is the one about postmodernism uh, a few weeks ago. But when it comes to threads, do you feel that like the medium spoke to you because it's inherently aphoristic or do you feel like it was just that Twitter was something that the frogs were getting on. That's it, they saw the potential in it, that it could be the, like sort of a global consciousness in a way. Uh, like, so how did you attract to the thread thing and how did like the skill of it, instead of just like doing what everyone, like what I was doing at the time, like everyone else was doing, which is writing articles and like, you know, popping them into Thermidor and social matters. So, yeah. Yeah. So there's something which I think people get this, especially when they read my threads and some people who maybe like use my style is that, uh, what really struck me about Twitter is that when you're reading a tweet, and especially when you're reading a thread, there's a sense of place. There's a sense of location to it. Because yeah. you can only really see, especially on a mobile device, you can only see about one and a half tweets on your screen at a time. So the, the idea of interlinking threads, it's not different from what people used to do in the blogosphere, where they would always have a bunch of links back to their old content. And this is almost just a cynical SEO thing. It drives retention and engagement or whatever. But uh, really, it's that exact same idea just applied to Twitter. And as soon as I realized, oh, you can like link back to other content, I, I saw very quickly that I could create a space. Uh, yeah. you know, Bronze Age Pervert talks about the desire to own space. And I realized that I could own space in this virtual way which, you know, as the maker of Candy Crush, I'm very aware of virtual spaces <laughs> and virtual yeah. topologies and all this. And and so uh, it just felt very natural to me to kind of carve out territory. Well, whereas a lot of other people were just kind of like tweeting off the cuff, threading because threads seem to be a thing to do. Like that's part of it, of course. You know, you, you yeah. follow the flows of social pressure, but... Uh, it very quickly became apparent to me that I could create a labyrinth, which labyrinths, as, as a student of Borges, are one of my favorite things. Uh, it's an obsession I have. I'll actually tell you, when I dream, when I, when I sleep at night and I dream, I have very recurring themes. I almost always dream about being lost in, uh, in large, impossible houses. Yeah, same with, with me, actually, yeah. Yeah, just constantly. This is the dream I have every night. I'm in a place with a, an ever-shifting landscape. The doors aren't static, the staircases move every, not every night, but when I remember a dream, it's usually that. I, I feel like place is a, a big theme of your work as well, like virtually and physically. Like, you know what you reminded me of? I wanted to talk to you about, um, of course, like Borges is a big influence in your work. The, you know, like there are two things, I think the sense of place the phenomenology of a place, but also obsession. I mean, Zaire is the one short story that comes to mind. But recently for another podcast um, episode, 
I've been reading House of Leaves. Are you a fan of House of Leaves? ZHPR? Oh, yeah. I actually discovered yeah. House of Leaves before I found anything uh, by Borges, and I, I was blown away by it. I loved it. I, I was, it was one of my favorite things I'd ever read, and so I went on the internet. And actually, I started reading that because of 4chan, but uh, it was like a mean book on 4chan to read. I went on the internet, and people were like, oh, you like that? But you need to read Borges. And my mind was blown. <laughs> yeah. No, but the sort of labyrinthine nature of even just the, the intertextual nature of the book being like a mock paper that has citations and the citations gets lost in the narrator, uh, like, for example, talking to his friend Lude, like I noticed like your style, like the Internet uh, has enabled you to very to like refer back to things and to create a very labyrinthine presentation like before we're, you know, WordPress nuked your site. I, it's still on Substack, but you had to those, create those, like, sub-pages. bastards. Those fucking bastards. The one thing I haven't been able to reproduce. So Substack, I'm going to just complain about Substack here. Great service that they offer no freedom to a man who, who wishes to be creative with formats. There's no yeah. colored text. Like, you can't, you can't color things. You can't style things. You can't create hidden pages. My God, how am I supposed to create a vast, like, spidery network of unlinked, of hidden content if I have to make every page visible. It drives me to distraction, Geo. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I love Substack. Substack's great. I, I, I love growing Substack. But you're right. It's true. You can't, like, the freedom of is gone. Why did WordPress nuke your thing? I guess you were just too, you got too big. I don't know. No, it was, I know exactly why. I mean, I I always posted pretty much highbrow content yeah. on on there. Like I was fairly I wasn't too worried about their content moderation policy, but uh, I never you know in most of my fiction I I keep it a little bit more under wraps. I write I write things that are a little more normally friendly. They're just not as crass. But I really broke out of that when I decided to write Baron. I don't know if you've seen this story. Most people don't like it. People don't want me to write a uh, Chinese progression fantasy novel about Baron Trump. Uh, oh, I was yeah. fine with it. But, yeah. you know, this was meant as a joke. In a, it's very, very tongue-in-cheek. It exists in this metaphysical world where it's like Donald Trump and conspiracy is real. And the, it had incredibly cartoonish and over-the-top anti-Semitism. Like, anyone with half a brain would be able to should be able to read it and be like, oh, this is like a tongue-in-cheek satire. We're so no, just yeah. Yeah, but but no, like the Jennies are utterly humorless and they do not have half a brain. And so I also was trying to be creative. I used every single slur for black people that I could possibly find in it. Like I, I haven't gone through the list exhaustively yet. There's a lot, but like you know, I was I was really looking for esoteric racial slurs to use. So it's possible that I've done with that. Also, I don't know. There's, there's really nothing about it that's socially acceptable, to be honest. It's kind of like bizarre literature. It's like a Carlton Mellick novel. It's like that that era of like shock literature. Um, yeah, like I wanted to take a risk and do something outside my norm that didn't just feel like what everyone expects of me. But your audience will punish you for that. Like audience yeah. capture is real. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I've noticed, like, even tweeting, I've noticed this, like, as a fact, like, 
like there was one where I started black pilling and then all, all of a sudden it's like, you know, you get to set it on. But um, the, I thought it was the one that the one that got you clipped was the trans one, the short story where it had the picture of like the long duck on it. Like, yeah, like, the duck. No, but that story was up for over a year and it never like seemed to be a problem. By the way, WordPress was not transparent to me at all. Like, I had no idea. They didn't tell me. There was no warning. There was no like email you were reporting like this violated our policy. No, one day it was just gone. But it was when I was actively publishing there, and so I'm sure, like the Jenny Brigade, there are so many people who just like hate me, like Antifa Reddit's watch me, not me alone, obviously, but among the people they watch, and someone must have seen that and been like, oh, I have an idea. Uh, but I never saw anyone brag about it either. So who knows? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. They yeah, they really hate you. Like you, you have an intersection of like a huge list of haters that have <laughs> you know come after you. Um, no, but uh, but yeah, getting back to the the sort of labyrinthine nature of your work. Um, the, you know, it's funny that like okay, so there is always. Um, there's like a perception even of like what Zerich Lovecraft does. Like, you know, those memes of like back in the day you did these high IQ threads. And now you're like talking about, I don't know, like uh, impossible women or something like it or telling them to lose weight or, you know, like, but then people don't get it. I feel like you, you always were just as much of a, you know, deplorable as, <laughs> as people always. like imagine. Always. Yeah. But, but when it, <laughs> Yeah, but me you can talk about like what do you feel about like the perception that, and I guess the question would lead into like, um, like I, I I don't know this scene or this sector in general, but the question of like okay, do you feel that like you obviously still publish, you obviously have come out with like a lot of brilliant works, but this perception that you know you're just uh, I don't know posting like bait or whatever, like for example last week you you tweeted about uh, the the prawn thing the the porno. Oh, about, yeah. yeah so speak to that a bit like the perception of like your work but also that tweet in particular and the whole like faction war going on between mahek and wholesome you know trad homestead and i don't know bappy and vitalist i guess you could say yeah yeah uh well i mean there's there's several ways into that so the first thing is i like writing big long form work takes a lot of time yeah. At least for me. And people want content like constantly, right? And I'm not even talking about like trying to please an audience per se, because I think uh, if you are following me with a desire to be pleased as an audience, you're following the wrong person. I, I instead, I often, I cannot resist antagonizing my audience as so many people probably feel the same impulse. Uh, but when I, when I write even a thread that I do now, I might read several books in the course of writing that thread. And maybe I pull one sentence from one of those books into the thread, but I, I actually do a lot of reading and a lot of homework. I'm, I'm interested in ideas and how they fit together. And if I think, oh, well, I want to write a thread about this, then a lot of the time I'm going to make a reading list and I'm going to go chew through some books to make sure that I get it right, to make sure that I uh, offer you know, a depth of perspective. And if people think my threads are deep in some way, then it's because there's a lot going on under the surface. It's not just kind of like I sit down one afternoon and write it. That's not what happens. 
So uh, my effort posts over time have grown more effortful because I, like, with each sort of thing I put out, I cannot help but internally raise the bar for myself and think, okay, well, I have to put out better things now. Uh, if I'm going to put effort into it, it has to be really good. And a lot of people are paralyzed by this. They become paralyzed by perfectionism and they think, okay, well, if I'm going to put out something really good, then it has to be perfect. Yeah, and, I don't yeah. and I don't, I don't, I struggle very hard not to fall victim to that. Uh, but the pace of my effortful content is just, is necessarily slow. And in the course of trying to write that, like my next piece, uh, part three of my functionalist religion essays, you know, I was writing that and then I found two books that I needed to read that just like I got sidetracked. And so not even sidetracked, it's just like, all right, I can't write this essay until I've read this book. I'm not going to say what book it is because you'll find out. Mm -hmm. But it's like I, you know, if I if I'm walking down that path and I discover something that that needs to be sort of uh, contended that I need to contend with, then I'm going to before I write that thing. So uh, that's why I have like a slower rate of publishing now, and why like even a thread, like I might spend a week writing a thread, not intensely, like I have a lot of other responsibilities too, but. Uh, you know, of the time that I'm able to dedicate to this life, a week of my productive output that could have been spent on a podcast, that could have been spent writing a story, is going to go to a thread. So, so that's why I do it less. Yeah. And, and yet, I know you are down with your board. I know you know about the society of the spectacle. Mm -hmm. uh, and what the spectacle ceases to, to talk about for three days ceases to exist. So yeah, uh, exactly. tweeting, tweeting is a heartbeat, right? It's just like, yes, I'm still here. I still hate all the people that you hate. And <laughs> I try to hate them in a funny way. And I try to play, not play favorites. Like I'll antagonize, you know, the commies for a few days and then I'll antagonize uh, the gays for a few days and then I'll antagonize the women for a few days. <laughs> and I like to switch off. But the thing is, as much as I try to keep that rotation, there's a lot of overlap between commies, women, gays, and uh, and I'm sorry, Gio, but like and Catholics. There's a lot of overlap oh, between commies. No. I, I know, I know. I don't want it to be that way. But but it often is. Uh, but I know a lot of great Catholics. Some some of my best friends are Catholic, uh, you know, at uh, some of my best friends are gay. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. At ZHP Tower, we have uh, we have the best sacraments. <laughs> it's, uh... But um, um, no, but it's the let's go to the Catholic thing. Okay, so this is a good jump off because I eventually want to get back to literature and the quest for own space. But I'm here just... for the pay pigs, Gio. Whatever, whatever you want to talk about, we can talk about. <laughs> no problem, no problem. But the, the porn thing, okay, the Catholic, okay. So yeah, I the know... porn thing. Yeah, so but I guess to paraphrase it, I know that you're you're obviously more of um, the sort of secular side of the right wing. Like having, like over the years, I remember you tweeting about religion, as you know, you have a very contentious relationship with traditional apostolic Christianity, and also I guess religion as a, as a whole. And I guess that's why people have pegged you with, um, you know, the rationalists. I mean, I, I want to get your critique actually of them and uh, why you hate Scott Alexander so much. But um, two things would come to mind would be, is that not just fatalism in terms of the subject or is that 
like I guess the subject living in the particular pressures of the modern world. And also people have accused you in that tweet alone of being like a crypto, like rationalist libertarian type by saying that if the government bans it, it's like, that's not good enough. Like, I mean, so it, yeah. But then again, you have, you have advocated quite viciously for a certain uh, government legislation against certain populations. So I, I don't see you being a, maybe you are a crypto libertarian. I don't know. I'm, how would you defend yourself against that? Uh, and the fatalism question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, so on the topic of fatalism, I respond with fatalism. Uh, I claim that there are people who are going to be destroyed by the world, and there are people who are, who are going to seize the world in their hand. Right. And not, like, which way, Western man? Shall you seize your cock, or shall you seize the world? Uh, <laughs> and I, I think that, uh, frankly, I try to be an optimist about this, but not everyone is going to make it. And I, I'm rooting for everyone to make it. I really am. But realistically, they're not. They're not all going to make it. Right. And if it's not the pornography that gets you, it's going to be a billion other things. It could just be a lack of initiative. It could be too much slop. It could be that your mama fed you oat milk as a kid. It could be... Oh, uh, like, I mean, it could be a thousand other things. Like you're, You could have been put on puberty blockers, and then you're just never going to make it. No one. No kid who's been put on puberty blockers is ever going to make it. Let's just be real. Yeah. Uh, and and there's, there's so many things like that that are going to be. So I'm not, I'm not fatalist, but I, I try to be a realist in the sense that, like, I think you should develop your strength and your virtue as a man. I think you should, uh, you know, do everything in your power to assert your power. You should follow your will to power. But not everyone's going to make it. There's always going to be hazards. There's going to be a million hazards. And uh, most people are going to fall prey to one or another. It's not, it's not as if everyone exists in this state of excellence right. and then all the hazards pull them down. It's that most people exist in a state of mediocrity and it's a very rare person who rises above. So that's, that's how I respond to fatalism. And as to the charge of libertarianism, what I would say is that NRX broadly is a libertarian project. Right. And neo-reactionary, as much as maybe like labels are cringe, is a libertarian who has been mugged by reality. And they realize that liberty is not necessarily for the masses, and that the only way to prevent bad actors from subverting liberty is with authority. Right. So, like, libertarian quickly becomes a slur that means I don't think the government should give me money. Like, that's, that's really the axis that I perceive anyway. When, someone, when people say libertarian as a slur, what they usually mean by it is that they are in favor of some kind of government redistribution of wealth. And, uh, like I said, for whatever reason, that does seem to attract a lot of Catholics, this like, idea of like, distributism or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think I think that's a pretty bad idea with the caveat that a town composed entirely of high IQ Anglos can be managed under almost any political system and still flourish. Right. Like communism can work if you live in a hamlet in England in the 1800s and 
your entire population is industrious, pious Anglos. So can any other system of government. So can anarchy, for that matter. Like, people always praise Burning Man. They're like, oh, look at Burning Man uh, with its anarchy. Being this anarchic megastructure type yeah. of system. Yeah. Or Kowloon well, Walled City, for example, yeah. Right. I don't know if it still works. Burning, uh, if Burning Man still works, but to the degree oh, it it's works, really it's, it's different. Yeah, I'm not surprised. To the, to the degree it ever worked in this like sort of pristine kind of communitarian way, it was because the only people there were all they were what Curtis Yarbin would call elves, right? Oh, <laughs> because they were God. no <laughs> like, like, that's why. Oh, that's no. why it works. No, not this argument with Burning <laughs> Yeah, seriously, it was like that was that was uh, an elven enterprise, and as soon as hobbits get involved, it stops working. And people think hobbits just means like flyover. I hate that term, flyover Americans. They think it just means like heritage Americans or, or heartland Americans or something like that. Yeah. It doesn't. It it means lump and proles. Yeah, it means it means the proles as much as like the old Marxist social classes are really defunct and I think don't apply anymore in the modern era. Like that's what it means. Right, right. But but to, but I guess again to push back, I feel like oh maybe it's my Catholic Catholicism coming out. But okay, so I I do feel that like I am a critic of capitalism the way it is nowadays. Obviously, like I I do think that when it like i but i know it's a meme though the whole like mahekin uh class conditions or whatever like that is obviously like a sort of post-left neo-marxist type of like thing that the right wing the e-right entertained for a little bit but i do feel that i know that like your sector pushes back on this and says that no actually those old like bircher anti-communist talking points they actually were correct that you don't want a government like you don't want this sort of like weirdo like pinko redistribution of wealth but at the same time i can't help but think that there are things that are allowed are allowed by um various government bodies to proliferate and flourish within the social body in the world the sort of infoocracy that we live in that do present very unique moral hazards and maybe it would behoove us to think of things more structurally and systematically but what do you think of that like obviously you you don't like the whole like system thinker like i don't know uh Shall I mention our our, our Swedish friend? Uh, our, oh no! Please, please not! Uh, please not our Swedish friend. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. Like the yeah, yeah. <laughs> like what's your I mean, critique of the whole Catholic communitarian, or like I, I'm noticing now trad communitarian anti-capitalist thinking. Thinking like, what is your? Yeah, well, so like if we yeah, I mean if we treat it closistically, if we look at like where those people are coming from, I think populism is always going to be, in some sense, demanding uh, wealth redistribution, right? Yeah, even Huey Long, right? Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, yeah and, and whether it's supposedly, like, whether it's ostensibly right-wing or left-wing populism, like, the moment you add populism, the moment populism is on the table, people are going to start demanding government money. And I'm, yeah, they won't I'm just I'm opposed to that, like, completely, uh, on every level. Uh, partly because I think that... Uh, because I believe, I'm an elitist, right? I believe that the elite, the good, the few should in fact rise above the mass. And so populism, in my opinion, is an attempt to retard and to, uh, to prevent that from ever happening. It's exactly a desire to sort of level humanity and say, 
that if anyone is elite, if anyone is great, then they have, I guess, this obligation to renounce their greatness and instead to lift up the herd. And I'm very much against that. Uh, whether you know left wing or not, obviously, I don't think. That so you want you want millions that. to die. In other words, you don't want millions. To I die. don't. You want... <laughs> I don't want millions to die, but I think that we must learn to have uh, compassion for the strong, and compassion for the strong means indifference to the weak. Holy, that's incredible. But no, but I I think like. But but then what would you say, though, about the sort of the, the still continuing fixation on Trumpism? And I, I know like during those days, you were pretty much in favor of it. But do you think that perhaps populism from the view of the frogs, if, if we could call it, you know, an amalgamated group, that that was sort of a cynical ploy for, well, maybe we're going to push the window in terms of electoral politics to like let in our own like elitist right word where uh compassion for the strong rather the weak sort of politics like what do you make of the whole like in hindsight because i i hate to say it, i hate to break it to you but trumpism ain't looking too good right now but in no, hindsight, trumpism, look look trumpism is pretty much i i cannot imagine that it's going to make a comeback and i mm -hmm. i hate to say anything bad about this man i think me neither me neither exactly a beautiful he's human being but politically i don't think he's viable anymore. I would still like to the degree I believe in voting, I would still vote for the man. Right. But uh, but I don't think Trumpism is viable anymore. And the honestly the reason it's not viable isn't because of policies, it isn't because of uh, like a shifting political landscape. It's for one very simple reason. And it's the same reason honestly isn't isn't viable anymore. It's that he lost. It's well, the he, German he, painter German painter regime I have to Edit for YouTube, but yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah the, the German painter regime. Sorry, yeah, the the uh, Austrian painter. <laughs> the Austrian painter. Thank you. Like for the same reason that that's not viable anymore, it's because it's because he lost. He was holding, in theory, something. It, it was like a dog. To use another courtesy of analogy, he was a dog who caught a car. Dogs chase cars. They don't know what to do with them once they get them, and. Trump was a dog who caught a car. In hindsight, that's what it turns out. Right, he didn't right. have enough loyalty. He didn't have enough people. He wasn't prepared to fight the war that he accidentally... Well, he didn't have like, any good people around him as well. That was a big thing. Right. Yeah. And, he didn't, and he didn't elevate anyone up either. Like, really good leaders are people who have an entire, like, uh, they have a crew. Right? They, have a, they have a bunch of subordinates who are loyal to them, who they built up with them and raised up through, through the years. Right. They're a, they're a whole institution and not just the one great man. As much as one great man is a shelling point who focuses a movement, the movement like needs needs its not just its head, it also needs a body. And Trump isn't having a body. And he could have probably pulled a bunch of frogs, maybe, and tried to form something like that, but it didn't happen. And it's not going to happen. Sad story. Was there an element of populism in Trump's policies? Yes, of course. In fact, you could almost say that Trump was a Clinton-era, you know, Democrat, which just seemed very far to the right in comparison, with with a touch of Pat Buchanan, which right. is what we all really liked. Um, politics is going to be full of compromises. You're not going to get an Austrian painter 
that you just get to vote for, not going to happen. So yeah, right. I'll throw my my support behind the man who at least wants to build a big beautiful wall and who says all the right things to all the all the right people, like at least in his in his public performance, right? Right. You know, I saw this tweet from. Uh, Richard Hanania, press S to spit. I don't know if that's how you say his name. Hanania, Hanania. Yeah, he looks like a gargoyle. Like, I see him, and you know, there's this old 4chan Greek, like, uh, creepypasta yeah. about, like, gray aliens and how every single human being has this limbic memory of, like, a, a creature with big eyes and a, and a round forehead. And like we're all terrified of this image, and it's an ancestral memory of something. It's an archetypal ancestral blood memory. Yeah, yeah. Richard Richard Hanani like triggers that instinct in me. Like I very much want to like, <laughs> I don't know, fight. It's fight or flight. Just when I see him, these eyes, these goblin eyes. Look, he had something saying like, in retrospect, we should never have supported Trump because character matters. And it's like, yeah, it does. And he's in, the only in this one age, character matters. a trace of character. Trump had, Trump had the character I wanted, which was like a, a violent refutation of like all of these smuggling. The liberal civility liberal of the Obama years. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So did he have everything I wanted? No. And the candidate that you get in, in a democratic-ish, okay, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, cool. The degree that we live in a democratic government is not going to be the candidate you necessarily. It's not going. To, it's not going to be your six hundred bullet point list, right? I'll settle right. for a wall and a man who says "fuck you" to the pieties that I hate. Exactly. Yeah, but but then, do you figure that Trump, in a way, Trump was like the postmodern candidate because it was sort of like um, a pantomime of the strong man going it alone. But if you do like. As you have, if you studied historical strongmen, and even BAP talks about this, they always did have a crew. They always did have people behind them. So, like, as auxiliaries, as men that you bring up that can fulfill those roles in a sort of more functionary position when you do achieve power. Trump had like this ragtag assembly of different people. He had some good people like Bannon and, and Darren Beatty, but like, that were our guys. Well, I don't know how much Bannon is our guy, but like you know, what Bannon, like, Bannon is debatable. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, but like no, those people left very quickly, and it was he yeah, was left. Were, yeah, and Jerry Kushner, like that's all he had. He just had Jerry Kushner. That yeah. was it. Was it was a disaster? And I mean, we just have to move forward. That's all we can do. But, yeah, but you you had a thought though. Sorry to go back to Trump, but like you had a thought about the the sort of nature and future of democratic government that you said you have a lot of thoughts on. So please go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, they're they're broad, high level thoughts. Like obviously, you know, I'm no fan of democracy uh, or of democratic processes, and nor do I believe that we're living in a democratic government. I think obviously, uh, yeah. Like that's that's clearly very false. That's all. That's all I meant. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 But so I, I guess, but then your critique, I, I asked you about your critique of uh, sort of like uh, Catholic moralism, if you will, but I guess in general, yeah. you could say that the shape of like the, the trads and the homesteaders and like, you get a lot of heat because yeah. like, well, they, let's, let's talk about moral hazard, I guess. Maybe that's, that's yeah. something we should come back to because like you said, uh, 
in a sense, I'm very pro-liberty as much as I recognize that liberty doesn't really exist in the way that it's popularly conceived. Right. And I've written about this too. Like, the, the idea of social freedom is very much an illusion because no matter what the law says, there's always going to be social norms. There's always going to be people pushing on you to act in certain ways, to have certain beliefs. Uh, the roles that you play end up defining you far more than any kind of like abstracted, pure notion of liberty. You're not acting in a vacuum. You're acting in a society. So in that sense, I have much more of a, a systematic, like I do, I do believe that systems have their place right, in, right. in social like formation and in intersubjectivity and all this. <laughs> but uh, there are, ultimately, uh, there, there are moral hazards that probably should be shut down. I think in in an actually free society, you would have no obligation to affirm, for example, that impossible women are women. You right. would, like no one, no one could possibly force you to do that. And if you weren't forced to do that, you simply never would, and almost no one would. And I was reading uh, some anarchist on Twitter. You know, like sometimes you hate read your enemies. Oh yeah. Uh, very, very last psychiatrist voice. If you're reading it, it's for you. But, <laughs> very true, very but true. I was reading, you know, some leftists and some anarchists, and one of them is like an impossible woman in the thread. And he says, well, wait, but under anarchy, how are we going to enforce trans rights? Oh, boy. Indeed. Oh, God. Oh. Indeed. And in that moment, he was darkly enlightened. <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. A, a lot of moral hazards, Brendan Ike, the, the Mozilla guy, right, yeah. made a donation to Proposition 8, and they got him off the board of Mozilla and kicked him out of all, like, it was, it was completely a, um, an organized cabal seizing power and forcing their will on the people from the top down. I, by the way, that can never be stopped. There will always be organized cabals. And the goal isn't to, like, there should be laws which are consistent and which are good. That's what exists in a perfect world. But the law will always be in tension with the people who enforce it. And what we need are good cabals good for like my personal zero hp lovecraft idiosyncratic understanding <laughs> we need good cabals right <laughs> that's that's how you get the government but then how would you say though i guess the logo to atlas tweet that you know the left they're the ones with the real will to power they're the real elite they're the real overman and that you're basically like a chud in your basement uh coding uh premium games and that you don't have power because you're a loser that believes in reactionary things. Like, I don't think Logo said that exactly, but that was basically... No, but that's the... That, let, me, let me just use the rationalist term. That's the steel man of Logo's argument, right? Right. Um, right. Well... Like, do they, have, they, do they have a form of will to power, in other words? I guess that's one thing I did want to ask you. Like, do, does the left... Then we'll get back to the moral hazard thing, but yeah. do they have a form of will to power, and how have they marched through the institution so effectively? Or is it because they possess a, a, a sort of singular progressive teleology that they keep enforcing through their own institutional power. It's sort of like a referential loop, if you will. So, I mean, like there's, I think that all these models probably run the risk of dramatically oversimplifying. Definitely yeah. individual leftists have a will to power and quite arguably uh, men have a will to power. I don't think women really do, but I think, or now it's not entirely true. Women have a will to power, but they must exercise it through men. Yeah. Um, men have a will to power, 
And so when you look at something like gay marriage is a great example. Gay men definitely have a will to power. There's no oh, yeah. doubt about it. And so do uh, impossible women. They have a will to power, yeah. which is how we know that their femininity is impossible. But uh, so, so yes, that, that definitely exists. Now, does the left broadly have a will to power? Well, certainly someone like uh, Lenin had a will to power. Oh, yeah. Some people actually argue that Stalin was a crypto rightist. Like, whatever he may have believed, he was functionally a right winger. That's an interesting thought. I, I don't quite agree, but yeah, sure, you know, okay. Let's, well, let's gloss over that for now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's, let's leave that for the moment. Uh, does the left broadly have a will to power? No. Individuals have a will to power. And a lot of what we think of as leftism is probably better defined as entropy. That's what yeah. I think. So, like, when the left is in power, when we say, oh, the left is winning, what we really mean is entropy is winning. And individuals acting on their rules of power appeal to leftist principles in order to assert their will in a limited way. And the result is chaos. The result is leftism. That's, that's how I think about it. But, but, so you mean entropy is like sort of the, the dispelling of energy like you mean that when a civilization goes in its winter phase, that's usually when you'll find like very entropic politics, if you will, that don't really have a sort of a verb or a, or yeah, even like I'll, when, I'll all, when all example. space is owned, when all space is owned, that's when it happens. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, yeah. do you believe? I I don't really believe this, but but I don't want to bias you too much. Do you believe that if I guess Joe Biden is president now? Theoretically, do you believe that if Joe Biden said, "Okay, we're going to like reinvigorate the space program and put a, a black woman on Mars uh, before Elon Musk, with all his ridiculous wealth and power in the U.S. government, do you believe that he could do it? Do you believe the U.S. government could put a black woman on Mars?" Yeah, obviously. I mean, if they, if you know, if they could put a, yeah, yeah, they've I mean, they put men on Mars. Oh, you mean Mars? I think you meant the... Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mars? No, Mars. No, on I, the planet Mars. Do you believe they can put a black woman on Mars? Do you believe Joe Biden, if he like just somehow magically became lucid and said, okay, I'm going to snap my fingers, we're going to put the people on it, we're going to put a black woman on Mars, but for Elon Musk, and with a glorious victory, uh, because Elon's going to put a white man there, we can't have that. I think that right. there is... I think that there's much more limitations to the human body in space than people realize. So I think in general, going to Mars is sort of like, unless there's some kind of cryogenesis uh, technology there, I don't know. I, I don't know. Okay, let's take a different example. Something that is feasible. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. That's what I mean by entropy. Like 60 years ago, the U.S. could say, we're going to get on that moon. Right. And, uh, and they could do it. Because there was less entropy. Now we've we've decayed more, and I don't I don't anyway suspect that that's possible. So leftism is entropy, and it is not the case that when there's entropy, there's no will to power and there's no exercise of will to power. There is, right? But it's not directed behind any particular meta narrative. I understand. So, the, and I, I guess this would lead into your point about. Um, the the manifestation of like the way things have played out in terms of like even just the the like you were saying the constant flow of uh, 
like current happenings, for instance, on Twitter, like you always have like a spectacle that isn't paid attention to no longer exists. And it seems that reality is almost like confirming this weird phenomenon nowadays. I'm sure like, like magically all of a sudden, I don't know, the train derailments will stop if we go on to like another news item. It's like magically a certain illness, a certain Chinese delicacy no longer has a potency because nobody cares about it anymore. It seems like, I don't know, there's sort of an entropic politics to that as well. Um, and it, seems, it seems that the left, they're very good at like engineering the discourse in such a way as to have this like rapid burnout of happenings. And I think that's the way they maintain their power because on the back end, like the right wing they like dance around and like, you know, hop around like uh, train seals when a new discursive bobble comes down the pipe, like the whole gas. Does anybody care about gas stoves this week where they did a few, a few weeks ago? No, it's like, well, so there's a problem. A few people still do care. Like, yeah. is, is the conversation still talking about it? No, right. but there are definitely like legislators. I heard this years ago. I was at a party uh, a few years ago talking to some of my leftist friends and one of them was like, gas stoves, we have to ban them from every single house. And at the time, I thought, like, this was like, this was like in 2020, by the way. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and well, I thought, well, that's was, uh, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. It's probably going to happen. That's what I thought. And sure enough, like, it, it rolls around again. So I don't think that, I think gas stoves, they will continue to try to ban them. Uh, because one thing that is pretty consistent among the left is that they hate prosperity. They hate yeah. anything that produces wealth. They, you, you know, in uh, the Antichrist, Nietzsche says, what is good? Uh, what produces, I'm going to get the quote, I got it right here. Uh, I don't Anyways, there's something like, what is good? That which increases power or increases the feeling of power. Uh, the almost the exact opposite impulse obtains among the left is if something makes people powerful, they must destroy it. They must right. find out why it's evil, probably because it's racist, probably because it creates inequality. Anything that creates wealth creates inequality. So anything that creates wealth must be destroyed, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's gasoline or uh, capitalism, anything, anything at all. Right, right, right. And and I but then when it comes to like the way the engineer the sort of discourse, I mean, for example, I had this uh I had this tweet that I don't know if I should tweet it out, but I said it was another like uh how should I say it? A certain demographic of American that has that beat up this like MAGA boomer for saying a certain word and I said, Wow, it's kinda crazy how basically like vigilante death sentences are acceptable because you people have said like a certain Gamer word. Yeah, yeah they, that's they like that if someone dies because they said that word, they deserve to die. But that's... like the th the way they've engineered, I think norm they really are a cult of normalcy, and that they have managed to engineer like the you know the sallow term normie sadism against uh, whatever political enemy they have, which is really fascinating. I, I wonder like the mechanism of how they is it just because they have control over media and uh, entertainment institutions or is there something deeper as to why they've managed to perfect like normie sadism and the cult of their malice when it comes to their own political issues i, I always wondered that yeah yeah I, I think that there's there's definitely some engineering that occurs but i think that people overestimate the amount of social engineering that is done by the people in power 
And mm. a lot of it is just social opportunism, frankly. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's a very random walk among the discourse. One day, someone happens to make, like, a certain tweet, and it turns into a meme, and the meme goes viral, and now everyone's talking about X. And sometimes that's astroturf, because obviously we know that, like, Twitter had levers they could pull to, oh, yeah. to make certain things trend. But sometimes it is organic. And even when it's organic, uh, the, the left is very good at sort of jumping up on the opportunity and shaping the narrative. And you can watch this happen in real time because sometimes there will be a happening where they haven't quite sent out the marching orders about how everyone is supposed to feel about it. Mm -hmm. And you will see a diversity of perspectives among normies on a certain issue. And then you'll see the opinion piece that tells people what they're supposed to think and suddenly everyone will change their mind they like it arrests their independent thought and they immediately get in lockstep behind the correct opinion that the the tv or whatever pundit told them to think um and it happens peer-to-peer -peer. it doesn't happen like it is top down in the sense that like there will be there will be a discourse from from on high from the new york times from if you must call it this the cathedral right but, but you have a problem with that term that we could get into as well i was, I was I actually your, uh, i don't mind it I know people are saying like they don't like that term because, um, well, for various reasons. I think like it doesn't really capture, like again, my my gripe was always that uh, because Foucault doesn't read the French theorist that he's gonna miss out on a few key insights here and there. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, these days I think the long house has become a better term. Or GNC must stop <laughs> this this nutrition. Why POC? Um, LGBT plus communism, as I like to call it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the word that we use uh, changes all the time. The concept yeah. really doesn't change that much. Well, there is that other one, but I don't think I could talk about. Well, you know. <laughs> we we said we pay well that one. <laughs> yeah, we'll pay well that one. But um, no, but I, but to get back to it though, you were saying about. Uh, I, I guess this feeds into like the original question though about the factionalism on the political right, because it seems that there is a lot of like, um, they want to sort of like reverse engineer. I mean, I've been accused of this as well because like, you know, I entertain certain uh, French theorists, but I, I guess the impulse is that to have the same sort of drive to a sort of like, you know, a populism that the political left was very good at weaponizing towards like more of a, I don't know, like rural like communitarian thing but but i think all these dichotomies like again i think scott career is correct in that all these dichotomies are false because like, let's face it most of us live in the burbs i live in the burb i live in an older burb that's adjacent to the rural but like you know what i mean like i live you know let's face it we're not like yeah. i mean i come from a working class background i'm well small business is kind of debatable i'm a you know petty bourgeoisie or whatever but like you know i mean all this stuff to me is like terminally uh, not very productive but i do see the critique though from your perspective so do you feel like the right wing is being seduced by a lot of these like leftist concepts if you will i know that's one of your big criticisms but yeah go so, ahead yeah, honestly not that much uh, not as much as, as maybe is imagined um rural is right there there's scarcely such a thing as rural anymore yeah um everyone just about is in driving distance of a home depot and a grocery store, and some of them have more land. But it's not as if people are really, uh, like, 
the, the divide is so much less stark and less meaningful than it used to be, which is right. probably why people jump on it now so with so much conviction. It's precisely because they can feel attenuating, precisely because that identity is becoming so thin that it forces them to lean into it ever more desperately. And I think we see that same effect with a lot of other identities, whether it's uh, a religious identity or a political identity. People mostly sense that these identities don't mean that much. And so the more meaning kind of reaches out of it, the more vigorously they try to perform it in order to right. extract whatever meaning is left. Uh, or I should say whatever meaning remains. But I also don't think the left is, is seducing the right or splitting the right either. I think all of these fault lines are sort of very ephemeral and they always exist. And the yeah. reason it may appear that there's this like factionalism is only because there's no showing point. Everyone could put aside their differences and vote for Trump when he was uh, doing his thing because his performance was so captivating. But there's no one like that now. Ron DeSantis is not its chief. Uh, I'm sorry. He's probably a fine governor of uh, Florida for as far as that goes. Yeah. Right. But. Um, but wait, weren't you? Wouldn't your uh, Claremont paymasters be upset by you saying this? Should I censor this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm actually getting uh, furious DMs from Peter Thiel right now, telling me to stop. <laughs> Apparently, he's bugging this call, telling me to stop saying this. Uh, yes, Peter, okay, I hear and obey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's either that or the Kremlin. I don't know who wants to elect Ron DeSantis anymore. Um, it's maybe both, maybe both. Um, maybe but both. yeah, but but it, but you do get like I, I noticed recently you really got a lot of heat by these people that you like were, I don't know, like you're like a rootless urbanite and you're bashing people. But I do like, I mean, as much as I've grew up around like more semi-rural areas and, you know, uh, construction and so forth, I do notice the critique of like escaping from, I don't know, like trying to escape from piss earth isn't like very <laughs> realistic nowadays, but also when it comes to like, uh, when it comes to, you know, especially the, the sort of raising children part, it's like, how do you equip your own offspring to harden themselves from the various poisons that are laid out for them. I feel like just denialism isn't going to be like, I remember this one land shark tweet where you said like, he used the Z word, obviously, which I can't say, but he's like, you, you think that the, uh, the Amish aren't going to instantly get annihilated with the first contact with the, you know, yeah, whatever you want to yeah, call exactly. it. GNC. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. This nutrition supplement company has to be stopped. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, it's the case. I, look, no one knows the answer to that question. I'm not going to pretend that I know. Uh, on right. some level, you have to just make a good choice, have faith, be the best role model you can, and hope that your children are able to follow your good example. And for a lot of people, I think there's been an explosion in interest in homesteading in part because of the pandemic and the lockdowns, and yeah. suddenly people were able to work remotely in a way that they never were before. So there was a bit of an exodus to the countryside, and that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and I have nothing against these people. But I do find it really obnoxious that they then 
will sort of, and they kind of have to do this. This is human nature. They have to feel good about their choice. And in order to feel good about their choice, they construct this identity where they think, well, I'm so much better than all those, uh, all those rooms who are still living in the cities. Look at me, I'm self-sufficient. I grew three potatoes. Let me write a think piece on how to reform the farming industry. And it's just so obnoxious. And I think real farmers are probably just as annoyed with those people as I am. And I also want to be really clear that I don't have anything against, I have a lot of friends on Twitter who grow their own food and do Yeah, me setting. too. I mean, I grow my yeah. own food. Not, not all food, but like I... No, not all food, but some of garden, you know, yeah. Yeah, and I don't have anything against any of those people. But there are, there's a contingent of really obnoxious people who, mm -hmm. uh, who I am targeting. And this is the problem with having a big account, by the way. If you, you, can't, you can't say anything small. If you say something against a certain person or a certain small group of people, uh, 90,000 people see that, what I said. Yeah. And a bunch of them think that they're in it, even when they're not. And there's just, you either end up devolving into this extremely bland, uh, like, amalgamation of platitudes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, so many accounts cross a certain threshold and they just become utterly boring. Because yeah. they can't say anything with conviction because they don't want to offend subscriber. They don't want to lose subscriber. Well, I just don't care. I'm anonymous, pseudonymous, partly because I want to be able to speak my mind. And if you can get caught in the crossfire, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm kind of the latter, though. I mean, I, I, I'm definitely afraid of offending people. But then sometimes you have no choice. And then it's like, yeah, you're going to... Sometimes it must be done. It, exactly, like what, to quote to quote Julius Evola, um, you know, um, not never, neither pleasure nor pain should factor into what must be done. Yeah, um, no, but I, I feel like, uh, like I have a lot of friends, you know, like, uh, you know, Michael Thomas of Shannon and our good friend Will Will Real Right, that you know, I, I they don't brag about it. it. It seem, you know, it's like it's just I feel like when it becomes this performative, thing, I think that's a conversation we've had before. Is that but then not like as, as fleshed out is that, you know, you had, you had a lot of, uh, your, your one thread was a big part of my one essay that I have to continue on the series about the E-Write, but you know, it seems that you know, the nature of an online group that has a sort of like, I mean, let's face it, all of us are very different, but yet we have similar goals. We have similar enemies, uh, but it's still a very porous type of thing. And there's not really a lot of, big markers of success and even the influence of us are is sort of like memefied into legend of like the influence of the frogs right but it seems at the end of the day there still is something that is preventative when it comes to the creatures of the depths rising to surface and and i know i know this debate came up recently with um certain you know zoomers that frequent a certain forum that said you know the old hats failed us old hats we failed and that we should be cleared out and that we're really just we're sort of like the 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 lion the the old elder lion that gets challenged by the younger ones in the pride and that it's like we we just sort of we lost the mandate of heaven have the old heads lost the mandate of heaven and what do you think about the future of the e right and like what constitutes us in general that's like sort of the big three questions i have yeah okay uh have the old heads lost the mandate of heaven 
Yeah. Well, the mandate of heaven is tautological. When you have it, you know, and when you you don't really find out you've lost it until you've lost it. So right. for the moment, I think the answer is a tentative no, we shall see. What is the future of the online right? Uh, well, the posting will continue until morale improves. Exactly. Yeah. That's really all I can say. I, I don't think anyone's going to shut up. I think that we see all these really novel phenomena such as social media. Social media has not been around very long, right? But right. I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think it's going to stop existing. No. It, no. It's, it's too addictive. It's too, yeah, it connects yeah. us. Yeah. And as far as like the creatures of the depths clawing themselves about it, I think arguably Donald Trump was that. And I think mm-hmm. Elon Musk buying Twitter is an attempt to reopen that channel. Like Elon saw the channel close. He saw the he saw that he saw that opening close up, and he tried to pry it open again. And that's what he's done by purchasing Twitter and relaxing some of the controls. Yeah, I think that is good. Uh, almost no matter what comes out of it. So young people always think that people slightly older than they are are on their way out. They're not entirely wrong. Right. But uh, there's also a youthful arrogance to it. Well, you, like, you said... It's, it's something good. We yeah. are more meritocratic than most. I know it's always that, that like those giga chat dialogues, like hashtag meritocracy, hashtag highly respected, hashtag sensitive young men. So, it's, <laughs> yeah. But, yes. um, but no, it, it's funny though. Uh, I'm actually shocked I've not managed to get griped. Maybe because I have a sympathy for uh, the, the young one, the the young the the mine chuds. But that being said, like I you you had this one point that I felt was very pertinent where you said that you when you've been around for long enough, you've seen the cycles. Bracket group or any other young group. I'm just saying in general, there there seems to be like the wave of stagnation, entropy. There's a new crop of posters that come up. And see that we're the ones that can lead you to the promised land. All the old, the old guard, they failed, and that's like we have something new. But then that cycle continues, and then what's new becomes old, old hat. Yeah, it's, you know. it's quite cyclical, and it's amazing how you'll see certain people suddenly seem to appear. They didn't yeah. appear suddenly; they just weren't in your cone of visibility. But all yeah. of a sudden, some new poster is hot, and you're seeing their threads everywhere, and you're seeing their tweets everywhere. Or whatever uh, their articles, they've got an article in this or that magazine, and you're like, "Wow, that person's really coming up." And a lot of them don't have that much staying power. Like once their novelty wears off, because most people don't have that many unique things to say in them. And yeah. they'll kind of, um, this is a really, really funny reference that is going to like embarrass me. But <laughs> will you do you watch much YouTube and kind of pay attention to like normie YouTube? What what type of YouTube? Normie YouTube, like YouTube for the normies. I I mean I watch like bushcraft and uh, Asian men cooking things video. But what do you mean by normie YouTube? I pay attention there to was a comedian who went super viral last year, and he was just I think he was like a Vietnamese guy or a Chinese guy, and he made fun of a BBC Indian cooking video with his. An Indian woman made fried rice, and she made it really wrong. And he did this kind of like super foggy Chinese accent and mocked her. 
Oh, I think I remember this. Yeah. Yeah, he was called Uncle Roger, and it's the exact same cycle you see among like the Anon posters, but with like incredibly bland content. He makes the video doing a Fabi accent, talking about how to make fried rice. It was fucking everywhere. Every like it was work slacks. It was in like uh, like my all my normie channels, all my regular like non-anonymous friends were like sending this and posting it and talking about it. You couldn't couldn't get away from it. I felt like. Man. And it's just because everyone loves to laugh at a Fabi accent, but it's not politically correct anymore unless it's a, an authentic Chinese person doing it. Right. And then it's okay. Uh, so this American Chinese guy, who's not even slightly Fabi, put on his best yellow face, made fun of his Chinese uncle, went super viral talking about fried rice, and did a ton of numbers. I'm sure he made money. Oh, yeah. For like the next like month or so, he just kept making the same damn video over and over and over again. Just oh, more and no. more body fried rice critiques. Like, they were subtly different. Like, he made fun of this person making fried rice. He made fun of that person making fried rice. Celebrity chefs invited them onto their show to make fried rice or critique their fried rice. And it very quickly exhausts itself. Uh, but you see these exact same cycles in, in every sort of, like, media channel, whether it's among, like, uh, the, the online fascist right, yeah. I'm sure you see the exact same thing among all the leftists and the commies, and the same thing among the normies with their, their fried rice videos. It's all just, it's all fried rice to you. It's fried rice all the way down. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I wonder, like, who is, I could think, like, even, like, leftoids have, like, the big, like, bread tube influencers that then get canceled. Like, uh, I don't know. Like, I think people hate, do they hate Vouch now? Maybe I, I, don't know. I mean they ought to like. <laughs> yeah, <Jesus> <laughs> <Christ>. <laughs> no, I remember they canceled uh, contrapoints. Uh, that was. Yeah. I wonder if like the particular uh, glow in the dark, uh, you know, Twitter activists, uh, you know, the anti, you know, who's. I wonder if they have influencers. Oh, I know they do. They get canceled. They this certainly one, uh, do. Kind of like my my attempt to formulate a Catholic friendly critique of all forms of wealth redistribution. Right. that they're grounded in envy more than anything else. Man. Whatever high-minded principles people appeal to, uh, jealousy rules everyone. Yeah. Um, and there's this Nietzschean uh, maxim that you should uh, attack that which you wish to strengthen. So <laughs> yeah. there's a, a very like mutually dependent relationship between antagonists, and one should be grateful for a good enemy. And the, the process of growing your online presence is very much the process of searching for a better enemy. Exactly. And this process often cultivates in self-destruction, and I hope that for me it doesn't. But how do, I, how do I deal with it? Well, it's simple. When someone calls me zero pussy lovecraft, I smack my wife on the ass and I smile. And it's that <laughs> simple because it's, uh, it's really, it's not separate. And most of these people who hate you, who hate me, who hate any of us, I said this too, they, they form an extremely shallow impression of who you are. Like, yeah. Do you think most of my haters have actually read my essays or my threads? I don't. But I know that I've already wounded them uh, more in most cases. But they, uh, these people, like, imagine the amount of emotional pain, which is fleeting, by the way. It passes and then it's over. The amount of emotional pain that someone is in 
that causes them to like furiously DM you and swear at you and call you all these words. Yeah, like that person is in that moment, they are hurting. And I cherish their pain. Yeah, I remember when the Ernie leftist went after me. I, I got DM'd Goatsy. I got DM'd the photo of me painting oh, yeah. Goatsy. Yeah, that was actually hilarious. That was pretty um I've been I should been... paint Goatsy. I think that'd be a, a mark. <laughs> <laughs> There's this weird thing in a lot of your works where the characters, they sort of like lose their inner voice as time goes on in the story. And now they become ostensibly the thing that they're trying to achieve or um, they're be they become that very phenomenon that they're chasing after. And their inner voice sort of like slips away. If you, Do you notice that? Like, was that a conscious thing? Because it seems that like what you're saying even about like people like being lit cells and like like being word you know word cells and shape rotators like pretending to read a book or people like pretending to like chide at like some social arrangement on the internet or wherever where it's like i have to overcome this group and i have to be the king of this sector no do you feel like is that a conscious choice though in a, like the the common themes of a lot of your work is that this like loss of a social voice and you're just purely motivated by this like lizard brain intentionality or do you think it's something else entirely i don't know yeah. but I, I can answer your question briefly which is that i i very much would say that that is a, a meta that is a motif in my work yeah the place where i would maybe push back is i would say that i don't necessarily believe there's such a strong individuality or social voice in the first place to be erased mm. um, i think that definitely my work uh, all kind of carries this theme of a, a person falling into falling into ideas, you could right. say, becoming possessed by by ideas or by a, a consciousness which is outside and which is alien and which is other. And uh, the the part that I find a little dubious is that there wasn't necessarily something there prior to that possession. Or if yeah. there was, it was only another outsideness. It was only another outside uh, consciousness or idea. So I, I kind of operate in this space where I see these these forces, if you like, the force of ideas. I like right. this term a lot. Uh, people, it's not that they have no agency, and it's not that they have no individuality at all, but they have affinities and they have tendencies which then react with ideas and and sort of take control of them. So to maybe bring it all the way back to the beginning, there is a fatalism in my right. work, but it's a fatal vitalism. Like I think that there are good ideas out there. I think one could become enamored of life-affirming ideas as well. So you think that the the sort of the human soul, if you will, it's more of like a Nietzsche and like amalgamation of different forces and um, epiphenomenal energies and habituations rather than this like consciously directed intentionality, uh, if you will. Like, is that what you're saying? Like, you can yeah, sort of guide would, those things a little bit, but yeah. I would, I, I would remind you and, and I would remind uh, our listeners that Freud and Nietzsche were basically contemporaries. Yes. And they, they both discovered the subconscious in their own way. And I think that the Nietzschean subconscious, like Nietzsche as psychologist, 
is yeah. a very underrated way of thinking and looking at Nietzsche. And oh, yeah. he, you know, the, the quotation that a thought comes not when I want, but when it wants is, uh, is very, very important. I think that ideas and beliefs are just as ontologically uh, real as people. Yeah. In a sense. That's incredible. And, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was going to say, in a sense, like I subscribe to this, I, I consider this to be a very Deleuzean idea, actually, that, that ideas kind of form abstract machines. Yes, exactly. Which manufacture desires and which push us in different ways. And I think that is entirely real. Like, that's not a metaphor. There really are ideas, and they only operate in our heads. Like, the, the idea is, in some sense, a static thing. The idea is eternal, the same way a math equation is. Where does, where does the concept of addition exist? Well, it exists in a realm of potentiality. And what gives it its dynamism, what causes it to do things, is it enters into a human brain or into a computer, and then through sort of this miracle of representation and electricity, something which is static, an idea, but real, now becomes something which has motion and change. And it's the ability to change in this system of, of electric representation where ideas come to life and act upon people. Man, that's you you've just described a thousand plateaus. <laughs> Virtuality, yes. actuality, exactly. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Content Minded Podcast, where every Wednesday there are interesting guests, amazing ideas, solo streams, and discussions on a diverse array of topics from art, philosophy history, and more. The free version will be available both here on YouTube and as a downloadable link on Anchor and Spotify, as well as on Substack. Each week, the full, uncensored, and spicier version will now be available on both Patreon and Substack, where you will have access to the full archive of both content-minded and of giant reviews where I break down interesting texts every week including other exciting paywalled articles and good content. Thank you all. Please like, share, and subscribe. God bless. Goodbye. Help keep the content renaissance alive. Too sweet.